0: Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Today I'm going to, I'd like for you to take with me a little journey, a little venture into something called exegesis. Now that is a way of interpreting scripture, exegesis. It literally means to draw out of a reading what is in the reading? You know, there would be another way to approach text, right? You go in looking for particular kind of information, or you have a message or a strong sense of what's going on, and you go into Scripture and search around until you find something that says what you want it to say. This is exegesis, and it's really, I would say, the preferred way of approaching Scripture, particularly. Difficult scripture. And it's extremely important on a scholarly level. So I'm letting you in on something here. It's something that we preachers, at least mainline Christendom, it's something we preachers do when we get a sermon ready. We do exegesis. When we're ready to teach a Bible study, when we're ready to preach a sermon, exegesis. And in the sphere of day-to-day living and in the face of today's news, given things like, Tropical storms and such. Uh, exegesis is admittedly a little bit boring. I mean, it's the stuff pastors do sitting in your office by yourself. <laughs> However, once in a while, it's really important to do it with a difficult passage like our gospel text for today. If we don't do exegesis with this story Jesus just comes off kind of like this mouthy grump who gets put in his place by this bold, brash, and quick-witted woman. So, what is it, you ask? I think I heard somebody say that. huh? This exegesis thing. Well, there's three basic questions in exegesis and thus of any biblical text. And it's these three things. First, you ask the text, what is going on here in this text? Like, what was its context? What had happened before? What happened after? What was going on in the life of Jesus and the disciples? The second question is this. What did it mean? I mean, in its own time and its own place, what did it mean in that context? And the third question is, why is it here? Why is it included in the Bible when we're told that there are many things that also occurred and they don't appear in the Bible? So why is it here? So with regard to today's gospel account, first question, what's going on? Jesus has made this rare entry into a foreign country. doesn't do it very often. He asked a favor. He refuses at first. This woman comes to him with a favor and he, he refuses that favor at first and then he gives in. Now that's simple enough, but some of that doesn't ring very true. A first century Canaanite was more no more likely to come and call Jesus Lord than a contemporary Palestinian is to call a Jew Lord in Israel today. And then there's this fact that she's a woman coming to this distinguished male who already had a reputation as a fantastic teacher and rabbi. And then there's the embarrassment of our sweet Jesus. <laughs> Loving, kind, sweet Jesus. The very Son of God. Kind of being nasty to this woman. He even calls her a dog which was a favorite term in those days for anyone who was a Gentile, so anyone who wasn't a Jew, often recalled dogs. And this is the same Jesus who at another time warned his disciples that you could be called to the fires of hell for calling someone a fool. Well, here he is calling this woman a dog. At least in the academic world, and sometimes in the world of the many brands of Christianity, if you take Scripture too literally, you get yourself in trouble. Just like taking old sayings like Proverbs and quoting them at the house. Or the book of Leviticus, or the story of Jonah and the whale, even the creation story. If you take those stories literally, you miss the point. For example when your husband lays around the house for a month trying to decide between two job offers and you say, listen, hon, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. You're not saying that a job is a bird or that your husband's a bird. You're telling him, make up your mind and get off your rear end. Nor is Jesus necessarily calling this despondent, needy, desperate woman a dog. He's quoting an old saying, which in this context means that God is a family matter and you're not family. And then she turns the old Jewish saying back on Jesus by suggesting, well, if his God is not big enough for both of them, then he's not much of a God. And Jesus had to agree. He agreed with her. It appears he changes his mind. He's persuaded. And so you have to ask of the text, how did this battle of wits get started in the first place? Why not just be nice and heal her daughter? And avoid all this unpleasantness, not to mention the bad press. Because, as Jesus told His disciples earlier when they had asked Him the very same question, my Father didn't tell me to go to the Gentiles. He sent me to the Jews. In other words, without specific instructions from His Father, Jesus just didn't feel that He could extend God's mission beyond His own Jewish people. Until now. Until He had been confronted with a person in need, and not until he had experienced the kind of faith that he wasn't running into much with the people of Israel. He was challenged to rethink his ideas about God. This new idea that God's mission could indeed be for everybody, not just the Jews. And Jesus concluded that whatever God's intention originally was, God was doing now a new thing and that God would want him to respond with kindness and mercy and creativity and love and redemption and grace to this new situation. Traditions were being transgressed. Boundaries were being blurred and stretched and Jesus' own religious imagination was being exercised. And so Jesus decided it's time to color Outside the lines. Now, throughout history, people who do that, color outside the lines, you know, they tend to make folks a little bit nervous, a little bit crazy, especially us religious folks. I think about Moses and his talking, burning bush. I think about Noah and his conversation with some voice that was telling him to build a huge boat. By the way, has anyone heard that same voice? How about that crazy prophet like Amos or Isaiah or the futurist, Daniel, who saw chariots and wheels and thunder and lightning? How about shepherds in a field or Jesus himself Or Peter, this foot-and-mouth fisherman, blue-collar worker who turned into a church evangelist, a builder of the kingdom. Or Paul, a persecutor of the Christians who became a a, a zealous advocate for the mission of Christ to the non-Jewish world. I think about Galileo and Darwin and Einstein and Florence Nightingale and Luther. And Jefferson and Martin Luther King, those people thought outside the lines and they worried us. They make us nervous. So getting back to our gospel for today, if this is at least a major part of what's going on here in this text, and that's what it might mean, the second question of exegesis remains, why is this Here. Why is it in Scripture? Because Scripture reminds us at the end of John's Gospel, right? There were many other things that took place in the life and ministry of Jesus, and they didn't make it into the book. Why did this one? Well, as you might have suspected, I'm going to try to answer that one for you. (laughs) Maybe it's included because by the time that this was written down, and passed along as a part of Matthew's Gospel, which is about 30, 40 years after Jesus had been crucified, the harsh reality was that the vast majority of the Jews had done what with the good news of Jesus? They'd rejected it. The vast majority had rejected it. The Gentiles, amazingly, in those first 30, 40, 50 years of Christianity, were gladly receiving it. They were hearing it as good news. They were believing it. And that was creating this great tension in the infant church. There was one side that was insisting that the church ought to remain strictly Jewish. And until you had converted all the Jews, you don't take the gospel out into the world. That was Peter, by the way. And the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And Peter argued with Paul over this, and they eventually they split. And Paul went on the road to take it to the non Jews. Peter stayed in Jerusalem to keep it with the Jews. So this is quite a conflict. And to our great benefit, Paul's point of view really won the day. And God's saving story for Israel became the salvation of what Paul called a new Israel, all the people of the world invited into the story and into the gospel of the good news of Jesus. So that's the second question. On to the third question of exegesis. What is all of this to you and me? So what? Every generation of Christians has the same task. We have a similar task as those who were our forerunners in the faith to determine what would Jesus think and do if he were here today. Those people who came up with that WWJD bracelet, they weren't far off. I used to laugh at them and make fun of them. But I think they were kind of right on. A better way to put it, what would Jesus do If he were here right now, which he is, via his Holy Spirit. Every generation of believers has to translate God's word into today's world to discern God's present will. Maybe you remember that there were times in Christianity when non-believers were killed in the name of Christ. You remember that? It's called the Crusades. There was a time when people of color were considered by some Christian bodies, some Christian denominations, as not being worthy of the promises of God. Remember that? Perhaps you remember that there were some in the Christian faith, in fact, many who felt that Hitler was right. Or those who still commingle, somehow, patriotism and faith. Some of you grew up with a Christianity that said smokers and dancers and card players were not worthy of the kingdom of God. Or those who claim that sexual orientation is a marker for getting in or out of the kingdom of heaven. So in view of what we know about Jesus, and having experienced Jesus' love and grace in our own lives, What would Jesus think about intolerance? What would Jesus think about violence? What would Jesus think about the lines that are drawn inside of churches that separate them into factions? How would God, His Father, want Him and us to deal with poverty and oppression? And politics. Just what would Jesus think of your life? Or mine? Or the ministry of the neighborhood church? These aren't just thinking problems. They challenge us to keep our ideas about God wide open. The way the Canaanite woman challenges Jesus And when we have to struggle with how do we keep the church, Christ's church, lively and relevant and engaging and meaningful, how do we make it compelling in Asia and Africa and India and South America, but most certainly here in America, today's America, here in Palos Verdes' estates, Southern California, it's the same question that this early church was wrestling with. You think we could stretch some boundaries? Think we might take down a few walls and barriers? Will we exercise some imagination about what the church should do and be? Can we be passionate and creative in our planning as partners in God's mission to the whole world? Can we be bold enough to join those who've gone before us and even those who are right now coloring outside of the lines for the cause of Christ? Well, folks, hear this reminder. What we say to these things will not be recorded in Scripture. That's already done. But what we do will greatly determine the kind of church and the world that our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren live in and the kind of God that they will believe in or not. I wonder just what crumbs might fall from our table. And I pray that God would help us. Amen. Glory be to you, Heavenly Father, through Christ our Lord, who with the Holy Spirit reigns eternally, one God, now and always. Amen.